In today's era of mass market paperbacks, there's really only one measure of a good book for the average consumer, and that is the New York Times bestseller list. Why? What happened in the realm of publishing that made the New York Times bestseller list so tantamount and so desired? I wish to be understood on my opinions about the New York Times bestseller as an institution in this episode, so let me be clear. It's not that I'm against the New York Times bestsellers. Far from it. I think that an institution that makes books more desirable to audiences, or in other words, finds ways to consistently keep noses in books rather than pointed at various screens, is doing some good in the world. However, the more I researched the institution, the more problems I found. Problems that actually hurt rather than helped the bookmaking enterprise. Let's get into it. The first place to start for me was the book list itself, which in reality is actually 13 separate lists under one name in categories like business, science, children's middle grade hardcover, and of course paperback trade fiction, the last of which is what most of our minds immediately turn to when we think about the list, right? So it's a conglomerate of sorts that also quite obviously drives book sales to a degree of mania for most authors. Pretty much the driving question that I encountered fairly early on in my research was, who is the bestseller list written for? Readers themselves, bookstores, editors, authors, or another undefined entity? Target audience is extremely important for disseminated information like the list because if people or companies outside of the target use the list, it likely won't work as intended. So a big part of getting to the bottom of the New York Times bestseller list is identifying the audience in order that to then subsequently determine what the list means to provide for that very same audience. I'm stating the obvious again here, but different audiences have different needs. So is part of the reason for the list becoming so enigmatic and mechanized because it started to serve a different audience than it was intended for? The most striking comparison that I can think of to break down the list is to compare it to movies. Films have pretty much one measurement, which is gross income. Movies like A Star is Born that get a ton of publicity usually get more tickets sold, so the box office lists are on par with our expectations and that they mirror their popularity as well as their run in the market. If we look at the top three movies in 2018, I'll give you a moment to think about your guesses here. Three, two, one. They are Avengers Infinity War, Black Panther, and Jurassic World Fallen King Kingdom, all three of which were produced by the Buena Vista Corporation, aka Disney. No surprises. On the other hand, the New York Times bestseller list does not operate based on sales or popularity alone. If that were the case, the Clark, as Clark Hoyt from the New York Times points out, books like Night by Ellie Wiesel would still be within the top 10, as Night, for example, is still streaming in one of the highest revenues of all time with a new translation done by his wife, but was evergreened, their word not mine, at 80 weeks. Evidently, the Times list also doesn't cite from week to week what their rankings are based off of, as the number and influence of individual contributors to each list changes on a weekly basis, and the company is afraid of bulk buying collusion, which is kind of like the publisher-bookstore equivalent of cheating at horse racing. But the problem remains the same, however, in that the New York Times bestseller list is not as proportionally reflective of popularity and sales as the box office list is. The reality is that it is highly subjective and highly variable um, in terms of its measurement of good books, and it's a measurement that I'm not sure should be used so ubiquitously by authors as a measurement of their success. 
In short, I can easily conclude that the list is unsurprisingly for larger consumers of books, like bookstores, and also ultimately for the readers themselves, so I'm going to say it and stand by it now. I don't think truly that it's fair to base authors' bonuses and things like this off of the list because of the aforementioned high degree of subjectivity, and I think that in general authors are harder critics on themselves than the public is, meaning in regards to the scope of this issue that they should not be looking at something so capricious as a measure of their success. Publishing a book, big publishing house or not, is success in itself. As a side note, Freakonomics has a great episode that was published about a month ago on failure that explores failure as well as success from a creative perspective, and I think that the interviews that they pulled from as well as the points that they make in that episode are quite compelling. It's linked in the show notes for y'all if you're interested. In addition, it's fairly clear from an interview by the bestseller list staff that larger publishing houses, if not more favored, certainly make the map more frequently because of their ability to disseminate information and books more quickly. This tidbit is important because as Northeastern scientist Albert Basebsi explains, virtually all times bestsellers are built up from week one, making it quite difficult for books from more locally grown sources to compete with the already established publishing bases. It also depends on when the books come out, which reportedly is a similar case to the film industry. The fall is the dullest time for movies, for example, because it's right before the December-January Oscar push, so producers strategically work around big movie events depending on the film that they want to release to time it right for the market. It's the same with novels, so evidently books um, are still one of the biggest holiday gifts in December for people to buy, so publishing smaller books in the beginning of the year, as we have seen with the two reviews that we've already done through on this channel, um, works really well to get them out there, perhaps even on a list like the New York Times. If you are understandably looking for an alternative to the New York Times bestseller list after this episode, USA Today also has a single list of purely uh, the best-selling books of all time, and it's fairly clear where their rankings come from, but on the other hand, I also understand the pull of the New York Times because it has this kind of credibility and substance that isn't really found in the bookselling business and other sources. So the New York Times bestseller list is a giant and it is quite enigmatic, but broken down begins to make a bit more sense than it did previously. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you enjoyed the discussion and would like to hear more from me, there is an episode of DH&I for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our back catalog of episodes. 2019 is the year of Didion, so if you'd like to follow along in my quest to read Joan Didion's collective works or learn more about the movement to bring lit back to people, everything can be found at Didion and Hawthorne.Blueberry.net, and remember that Blueberry is spelled B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. Now you can also follow the show on Twitter with at DidionIn, two ends total. I'll be posting about new lit releases, reading lists, and of course the new projects and episodes relating to DH&I. Still there? One more thing then. Remember that leaving a comment or a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or any other Guilty Pleasure podcast platform helps leverage the show so that other literature enthusiasts can find the community. In other words, it helps a ton. Auf Wiedersehen!